Faith and politics. We're not really sure whether they go together, are we, in, in the, the contemporary world? Faith is a personal decision for us. It's about personal morality. It's an interior experience. And politicians often talk about meddling priests. It's a, a, a quote from a long time ago when Henry the Fourth, I think, was it Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth? One of the Henrys who uh, decided to do away with Thomas Becket, um, and uh, in the eleventh century, the twelfth century, I think. Paul Keating used it against Frank Brennan, the Catholic priest who was. Uh, um, and has always been a great um, advocate for Aboriginal land rights. He called, uh, he called um, Frank a meddling priest. We're not really sure about whether politics and faith should go together and the rise of right-wing activism in the United States and here, in fact, in South Australia, where the Liberal Party went on a bit of a bender to uh, attract conservative Christians uh, uh, to the Liberal Party and David Spears, who as the new Liberal leader has kind of disavowed that and said that's probably not the way the Liberal Party ought to go, or any party in fact, sort of colonised by a particular religious faith. We're not really sure what to do with faith in the public sphere. But if you think about politics in the biggest possible sense as how we organise ourselves, then there's not many things that are not political. If you decide as a family to gather for a family gathering, that can be quite political, can't it? Where are we going to go? When are we going to go? Who's providing the food? What kind of food? It's better to stay home. <laughs> Everything is political in that sense. And look at Jesus' position. This is not party political. This is political in the big sense. Jesus says at the beginning of this gospel that we're going to be stuck with for the rest of the, the year until we get to Advent. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus is interested in human beings being fully free and alive, oppressed and sightless, is not free and alive. He's interested in people being opened up. But he's also interested in human community being full and alive. It's good news for the poor. And the only good news for the poor is that they won't be poor anymore. That's the only good news. It wasn't Gandhi who said the only way God can appear to the hungry is as bread. And this is what's going on in this text. Because when Jesus says, what is your name? And he says, Legion, this is both corporate and personal. When somebody asks, what is your name? A name is a personal uh, identifier. It's, it's central to who we are as people. The Convention to the, on the Rights of the Child in Article 7 says that every child has the right to their own name. I mean... You've got to think about what kind of world are we living in where you need to write that down on a piece of paper. Every child has a right to a name. If you've been to the 9-11 memorial in New York City in downtown Manhattan, 
you'll notice that all of the memorial, it, it's these two big holes, the shape of the two towers that came down, and all around the site is the names of the people who died. We're not numbers. We're names. We're individual people. And the great shock of our governments in the last 10 years treating people who were refugee and asylum seekers, coming here legally to do the legal thing, that is claim asylum in a third country. That's what they were allowed to do. That's what we signed up for with the international refugee conventions that we've signed. Being put into incarceration and given a number and being required to be called by... I've met young men who say they sometimes couldn't remember their own name because they were called only by a number. That's what we did. That's what our government has done. And if we don't speak out about that, how do we square that with the call constantly through the scriptures to care for the orphan, the widow and the alien, or the orphan, the widow and the stranger, the person from away who comes here? We're constantly called to do that. And of course we do, and we celebrate the fact that, that finally a government has seen sense to give the Bilawila, we call them the Bilawila family, the Mayan Gaskins, I think I'm saying it right, from uh, Sri Lanka, who have now been given the right to live, not yet permanently, but the right to live back in Bilawila, the community that had embraced them. It is, as Lee said, Refugee Week begins today. And the United Church has taken a strong stand that we must care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. We just must. That is our call. We can ignore it if we like, but it doesn't equate with who we are, who we're called to be. In the Synod meeting, which happens next week, the Synod Refugee Advocacy Group, which you may not know exists, but it's a small committee that, uh, that seeks to try and encourage the congregations of the United Church to care for these issues, particularly these issues. And one of the things we're going to call on people to do is imagine what it would look like if every member of every congregation of the United Church in Australia was to write to the new Minister of Immigration expressing our view on the way we should treat each other, particularly the way we should treat people who come from abroad as refugees and asylum seekers. It would change the face of politics in this country. Because you know, if you know any politicians at all, they pay particular attention to people who write to them. They know that that constituent is somebody with a great deal of energy for this issue. And they should pay attention to it. And then if it's two people writing to them, and if it's ten, and if it's a hundred. It's Refugee Week. Maybe you should consider this. And next week, we'll bang on about it at Synod, and um, you'll get, hear about it later in the papers that come out. Maybe you want, might want to think about doing that. It's very personal to have a name. But then Jesus says, what is your name? And the man says, legion. There is only one meaning for this word for the first century hearers of Jesus. And that is Rome's crucial superweapon. The legions of Rome that dominated the known world. And particularly Palestine. That's what legion meant then and still means now. It, it is the dominant force that controls the world. It would be like reading this story written as, it, 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 as if it was written in the Ukraine. And when Jesus says to the man, what is your name? He says, Russia. 
That's the import of this. Or if he said, if it was written in East Arnhem Land, and he said to the indigenous people of East Arnhem Land, what is your name? And they said, Europe, or the colonisers. It's about the way the world has completely been dominated. This is about a whole culture being possessed and driven to madness. If you know any refugee and asylum seekers who have had the privilege, privilege we call it, of being released into the community, they suffer long-term trauma from their incarceration. Trauma from their trip to get here. I know a young man who at 15, well probably 14, he doesn't really know how old he was, left Afghanistan by, because his mother told him, if you don't go, the Taliban will recruit you. He, was, he was a tall, still is a tall young man. He didn't know any other language. He, came, he walked all the way to Indonesia and finally got on a boat to get here. He suffered enormous trauma there, but the biggest trauma was when we locked him up for years. It's about a whole culture being possessed with madness. It's about a whole culture being dominated. It's also, of course, about physical and individual possession. We know all about physical addictions. Those of us who are, have been, are or have been in the grip of legal and illegal substances that have taken hold of us. And those of us who understand the grip that fear can have on us and dominate our entire lives, or envy can just saturate us, or being consumed by anger. We know all about possession. We don't need to take ourselves back to the first century and understand their view of the world. We know all about it. Or being overwhelmed by despair or depression. Or the obsession that we sometimes have, or some of us have all the time, with being totally in control. Needing to do exactly the same routine every day. And if not, we get so anxious we can't, we can't cope. We, we know all about possession. But we know about cultural possession too. We know that Nazism took over Germany, the most educated and cultured nation in Europe, by everyone's estimation, at the end of the 19th century. Suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, adopts this view of the world that allowed it to try to dominate the world and destroy a whole group of people, the Jews. Or gun ownership in the United States. We don't, we don't even understand how is it so important to Americans to be able to walk around the streets with a gun sticking out of their back pocket. Or, if we want to bring it to such, what about home ownership in Australia? We've taken what should be a God-given right to shelter and we've turned it into a marketable commodity. Whereby we pretend that it's, a, it's good news that your house is now worth $50,000 more than it was two years ago. Except, of course, when you sell your house to go and live somewhere else to downsize, you have to pay $50,000 more. We know this. This is insanity. But we keep telling ourselves it's a wonderful thing. We know all about cultural obsessions and possession. We are in the grip of things personally and culturally. So what's the good news in this story? Because we know all the bad news. It's full of bad news. 
Well, the good news is at the very end, the man is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. We're to unpack this. He's sitting. He's in control of his life again. He's at peace. You know that great quote from Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher, he said that the, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. All of humanity's problems stem from the, our inability, an individual's inability, to sit quietly in a room alone. It's worth going home and thinking about that. This man is doing that. He's sitting quietly. And he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's sitting in the moment where he's, at rece- he's in a position of receiving. That's the first century model. Everybody knew that if you sat at somebody's feet, and we still use the term a little bit, we're in a learning mode. We're in a receiving mode. We're open and ready to receive the gifts of life. And he's clothed. He's no longer exposed. He's no longer out there all by himself, naked in the world. He's sheltered and he's cared for. Something we all long for. We longed for it as children and some of us were fortunate enough to receive it. Some of us were not. And whether we were fortunate or we haven't been, we long for it all through our lives. To no longer be naked and exposed in the world, but to be cared for and protected. And he's in his right mind. He's in his right mind. He's restored to his full humanity. No longer distracted by everybody's views of him as mad, as dangerous. You know, they chained him up as of no worth. Like virtually dead, he was living in the graveyard. We don't need any more um, uh, views than that to know what kind of person he was perceived to be. And no longer exhausted. The good news is not that we become somebody else if we become a Christian, but we are restored to what it means to be truly ourselves, truly human beings, but truly our individual selves, truly the one person we were always supposed to be. There's a notion in the very strange apocalyptic book of Revelation where, where we're given the idea that you're given your true name you suddenly begin to discover who you truly and really are and you come alive in that. We're supposed to be fully alive, autonomous human beings, not possessed individually or possessed culturally by things that drive us nuts and make us less than human. We're supposed to be fully alive. We're supposed to be the ones that are autonomous and can stand up and make decisions. We're supposed to be the ones in the great story from the very beginning... Where God tells Adam to name all the animals. And you think, well, why? Well, because it's a story about autonomy. It's a story about decision making. It's a story about what it means to be alive and a full human being. We love celebrities because they seem rich enough and powerful enough to do what they want when they want. They're completely autonomous. We know it's rubbish. But that's what we love about it. The idea of it. If I was rich... If I was well known, I would. We all play that game. We're supposed to be independent and autonomous and interdependent. Because in the same story in Genesis, just a little bit later, we're supposed to be our brother's keeper. 
Cain and Abel, the Cain and Abel story, are supposed to be the ones who look after each other, who, who in the old Irish proverb, were supposed to be the ones who live in the shelter of each other. It's all about freedom. Well, how does it happen? We haven't got a clue. The story doesn't tell us. The story tells us that Jesus had sent the demons out of the man who called himself Legion. He had commanded the unclean spirits. It doesn't, we, we don't know what in fact actually happened. It's true of the resurrection. I don't know if you ever read the resurrection stories. We do at Easter time, but we know nothing about the resurrection at all. They tell us about what happened after it. Something extraordinary happened in this man's life and we can't even pin it down. But, and we know that because there aren't any easy answers. If you have found yourself in the grip of an addiction, a physical addiction, the 12-step program that Alcoholics Anonymous and, and Narcotics Anonymous and others have developed over the years, they're not simple, easy things to do. They're steps. And you can be engaged in those steps and not really know how you've gone from one state of being controlled to the state of being free. It just, I was... And now I'm this, I was that, and now I'm this, and somewhere in the middle. That's the miracle of life. That's maybe why we call it a miracle. We don't know how, but we know it's real. It's like being in love. I just met this person, and they seem really nice, and they laughed at my jokes. Whoop, suddenly I'm in love. I, I don't know how that... I don't even need to analyse how it happened. I just need to... What? Celebrate that it happened. Celebrate what we have. That's what we've been called to all the time, to celebrate the fact that we are constantly being freed from addictions, from possessions, from cultural possessions, from all the things that weigh us down and make us less than who we truly and honestly are. And when Jesus finishes, he takes off. And what does he say to the bloke? Go home. Be at home. We're not very good at being at home. When, when a dog's got nothing to do, a dog lies down and has a sleep. When I've got nothing to do, I get anxious. Because there must be other... I've got... You know, there's things I've got... I should be... I, we're hopeless, aren't we? What would it be like to be at home? Just where we're supposed to be, in the moment we're supposed to be, Loved and cared for, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Oh, stop, this has gone on way too long. My apologies. Let's stop. Amen.